to another episode of the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. I am your host, Joe. This is my co-host, Nick. Let's you say hi, Nick. Yeah, <laughs> we do that. Uh, so today, uh, we're going to jump in the way, way back machine. And, uh, today, we usually do that. So. Yeah, yeah, we haven't covered anything uh, modern ever. But uh, and we, we were the 90s once. Yeah, like... But it was, it was Russia 90s, so it's like the U.S. 70s. <laughs> uh, we're going to go back to the era of the Great Game, or what the Russians called the Tournament of Shadows, because the Russians are way better at naming yeah, things. It's just fucking awesome. Uh, so we're going to talk about the first Anglo-Afghan War, or more exactly, the British retreat from Kabul. I know it's fucking exciting. I'm pumped. That hung heavy on those motherfuckers, too. Yeah. How are you doing today, Nick? I'm doing good. I'm trying to get over the fact that I'm eating. Drinking some strawberry bullshit. Yeah, he picked up um, Perrier, uh, fucking sparkling natural mineral water for our vodka today, and um, it tastes like somebody ate a bushel of straw. Is bushel the correct word for strawberries? Why are you asking me? I'm, I'm gonna. I don't know. I'm gonna go with bushel. Um, I'm gonna go with. It's not race-related, it's fruit-related, alright? But they ate a whole bushel of strawberries and then just burped it into your nose. <laughs> it's disgusting. I'm only saying that because uh, I've known family members to work in strawberries, so <laughs> <laughs> that makes it worse. To hear more about Mexican history, go ahead and head back to <laughs> our last episode. episode. <laughs> um, anyway, before we get there, we have to actually explain the great, great game, Um I know I yada 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 my way through all of World War One in two episodes now, um, but you know the Great Game isn't something a lot of people are familiar with. It's not commonly taught in history classes. No. You won't catch it on the History Channel or Discovery Channel in between shows about pawn shops and you know American pickers or whatever. Uh, so we're actually going to go through it here. So uh, Ru- so Russia as a power was growing in- during the 1800s, and uh, their influence expanded with their imperial ambitions. And soon the biggest asshole on the block, the United Kingdom, began to get anxious as the upstart imperial power crept closer to Afghanistan. Um, Russia kind of saw Central Asia as their playing field. It was, that was supposed to be their sphere of influence. Um, they, it was their version of Manifest Destiny right. um, to expand that way. Um, so Afghanistan is, at this time, uncolonialized, which is surprising for this time in history. But it also bordered British India, also known as the British Raj, or the jewel of the crown of the empire. Right. Um, if Russia was to ally with or take over the emirate of Afghanistan, they could use it as a launch pad to invade India, which is something Britain was constantly worried about, because you know crushing the Indian people and milking their economy for all it's worth was pretty much how they funded everything back then. It was just a giant bank that was filled with human blood that they just took money from. Um, which was actually something Napoleon planned to do in 1801 with Paul I of Russia. Um, and it probably would have happened if Paul hadn't been assassinated. <laughs> um, so, you know, they could have had damper on their plans. And then obviously Napoleon invaded Russia and everything kind of went downhill with their relations since then. I feel like uh, we also need to point out who defined the name of the great game. Uh, Carly Meyer. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Did you cover that? I did not. So Carl E. Meyer stated uh, the state of the tensions between the two great European powers known as the Great Game as the clandestine struggle between Russia and Britain at this time for Central Asia, as Joe pointed out. So it kind of sounds a lot like what a lot of people have called it is the 1800s version of the Cold War. Basically, it really was. I find that really interesting because... It's fucking sweet that it happened this fucking early. Yeah. Uh, once you once people gather enough power, uh, the people caught in the middle are always going to end up being playthings. That happened. I mean, most people know about 
the intricacies of the Cold War, and you know we saw it in South America and Africa and everything in between. And this is the 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 prequel with gun with a uh, black powder rifles instead. Yeah. <laughs> Sweet looking fucking rifles. And like most pre prequels, this one kind of sucked. Um, if you were British, uh, <laughs> um, so of course Russia thought it was their God given right uh, to own that neighborhood, and just like the British thought that their empire was their God-given right. Right. And that's the whole thing where it's like uh, that imperial overconfidence and political incompetency and misjudgment that fucks them up, in my opinion. Yeah, it, it's a great uh, example of international realism. Yeah. Where, you know, two powers who only believe that strength is expanding are eventually going to smack into one another. Right. And that's why this shit doesn't work. Um, eventually... Sick of Russia's shit, Britain formed what they dubbed the Army of the Indus, uh, made up mostly of troops from the British East India Company. And we're not going to go too deep into the East India Company, because that would fill an entire 20 episodes on its yeah. own, and there's probably a podcast out there that's going to cover that significantly better than we would in a paragraph. Uh, just know that they're effectively like if all the rules had been taken away from Halliburton and KBR in Iraq, <laughs> and the U.S. government just let them rule by decree. They are, in effect, a libertarian's wet dream. Um, so the British regular army and that of the East India Company did not get along. Uh, the British regular officers looked at company counterparts like rejects and mercenaries, and they weren't entirely wrong. As for regular soldiers, the company was built upon the back of sepoys or Indian soldiers, conscripts, and things like that from the, the Raj. Uh, they had white soldiers as well and Europeans from various backgrounds, uh, because they didn't really have much of a filter. Yeah. There um, wasn't much of a fucking coffee filter back then. Yeah, when you're running a... Well, they'd probably have a tea well, filter. Yeah, yeah, a tea filter. A tea bag. There we go. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm American. Yeah, get your caffeinated beverages correct. Um, they just needed bodies to form their giant army. Um, and it was fucking huge. Um, which, but we won't go too far into that. So, this is a little bit more than Imperial Power Grab. Uh, they still had to cook up a Cassius Belly or a reason to go to war. And they found one once they started digging. Amir Muhammad Dost Khan, the leader of the of most of Afghanistan at the time, because at this time in history, like most parts of history, Afghanistan was the middle of a civil war. Um, but he laid siege to the city of Herat. In the early 1800s, Herat and Peshawar, which is now part of pa Pakistan, had been ruled by some asshole named Shuja Shah Durrani, who had declared himself king of all of Afghanistan, even though he controlled two parts of it. Right. Though his power never really extended past those two cities, and he was only in power for two years before getting deposed and chased off, he found refuge in the loving arms of the British East India Company, who paid him a salary to just sit around. The company was smart enough to know that he would be useful at some point. Lord Uckland, at this time, published the Simla Declaration, which condemned Dost Muhammad Khan for making a, quote, unprovoked attack on our ancient ally, which he's talking about the deposed King Suja, and he went on to talk about how the people still love Shuja Shah throughout Afghanistan, even though, you know, he didn't control all of Afghanistan, right. and would soon enter his realm surrounded by his soldiers and supported against foreign interference. Um, I have to assume he said all this with a straight face somehow, uh, because he <laughs> was foreign interference, uh, right. but that's kind of how Britain did things. Um, now, when the siege of Herat failed and Dost pulled back, Imperial Russia pulled out their advisors. So, uh, at this time... Uh, Russia had tons of advisors in there helping um, Dost Muhammad. Holy shit. Yeah. It, that was kind of like their version of we're sending military advisors, which, right. you know, yeah. we're going to try to create a European-like army in Afghanistan. That sounds really familiar. It does. Um, cool. Like, most prequels are depressing and bad, but this one's even worse. Yeah. Um, so, Russia just washed their hands of the entire situation and moved on. They left Afghanistan, which actually got rid of the British pretext for invasion. All of that horseshit about ancient allies aside, this was some. This is all a pissing contest, and uh, they're ensuring that the Russians didn't end up on the Indian border. And uh, even though the British absolutely knew, obviously news traveled slow back in the day, but the British knew about the Russian uh, advisors, and they knew that the advisors had left, and that if you thought that was enough to convince the company that invasion wasn't necessary, you must be new to our show. Right. Um, on November 25th, 1838, the Army of the Indus began their march to Kabul. Of course, everybody thought this had 
hardly be a challenge for the highly trained and battle-hardened forces of the company and the British regular army. Hell, Afghanistan didn't have a standing army. Um, no matter how much Russia tried, it's just not how their society No, these motherfuckers had sweet muskets, though. Yeah, the Gisales were on point. <laughs> they were uh, ancient, but could still slaughter a red coat just as good. Um, now un- we will cover soon. Yo, and slaughter they will. Um, Afghanistan did not have a standing army because of how their society was ran. Um, it was a tribal system, which you can kind of think of as a uh, feudal system where you know a, a lord, or in this case a warlord or a chieftain, would commit a certain amount of levies to the emir or the leader during a time of war. Um, they were armed with ancient jazales, which we just talked about. They were traditional matchlock weapons. Um, you can think of them as like even older than brown best muskets, right. um, but they were passed on through family lines and, and decorated. Like, I'm surprised I haven't seen some kind of artist hang one of these motherfuckers around their neck. It, it has covered in so much design <laughs> and intricacies and shit. Um, I can say that about the whole passing weapons through family lines. Cause as some may know, I used to be a reenactor and I still consider myself one because cosplayer. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> he was a cosplayer. <laughs> no, we weren't. <laughs> so, we had this one Southern guy who used to always reenact the Civil War, Confederacy. Granted, he was a racist motherfucker. Shocking. But, there Never are... Never would have seen that coming. Plenty of uh, Confederate reenactors that are actually there for just for the history. But there are some that are pretty bad apples, just like the World War II SS reenactors. But... <laughs> That's a different going episode entirely. Exactly. I really so, plan on doing one of those in the future. <laughs> uh, going on, this guy had a family uh, commemorative, like, nice musket from the time. And uh, I think it was the Kentucky Long Rifle. I can't really remember. But it was uh, every kill they've gotten hunting, probably Union hunting as well, was marked on the stock. And it was nicely done. And the most was, dangerous game. Honestly, it looked really beautiful, but the history behind it was kind of fucking evil. Well, when you go into the history of most things, it's evil. Um, Because, as most people know, my philosophy is humans are inherently bad, and it takes a lot of work to make us good. Right. Um, And we have yet to see the good. No. It's not what our show's about. If our show show covered good things, it wouldn't wouldn't be our show. No. It'd be something NPR had. We like to cover things that are bad because we like to make fun of it. And depressing things make us laugh because of everything. We hit ourselves the most. (laughs) Um, Anyway, uh, so the Duke of Wellington, while speaking at the House of Lords, said this whole operation was stupid, given that, quote, Afghanistan has no roads, was a land of rocks, sand, desert, ice, and snow, and that there was no infrastructure to handle such a movement of troops. And the Duke of Wellington would be more correct than he ever thought possible. The company's advance into the country went off generally without a hitch. Uh, they didn't have any you know, large standing formations in their way. Um, though at one point they left behind their siege guns before they attempted to take the city of Ganzi. <laughs> and they managed to break through the gates because the gates were like so old and battered from years of war and everything else. They just opened. They it was probably just shitty carpentry work, like shitty craftsmanship. Yeah. Like, they didn't measure twice, cut, cut once. <laughs> it's like, I fucked it. Like, yeah, yeah a gate will go here. essentially what I do for everything in it. Pretty much works out pretty and, well. It, it's it's the the work that you pay for you get exactly, and uh, and you know that personally. I do. Um, Thanks for uh, having us move in your house. <laughs> There's dents all over my walls. <laughs> <laughs> I just like to I would like to point that out. So happens when you get free work. Yeah, uh, I got what I paid for. Um, so the the gates were, were broken. They just walked right through. They also learned that their guest Shujasha was an insane person after he ordered all the Afghan fighters who were inside to be captured and beheaded. The company, not wanting to really make him look like a puppet, even though everybody knew he was a puppet, just let him go about his thing and let him slaughter whoever they wanted while everybody watched in horror. Um, but I don't think they watched in horror. Well, I mean, like, soldiers at the time wrote dispatches, but they're like, this is horrible. Like, a whole bunch of people just get their heads sawn off. But, like, a company leadership-wise, just lining up people and beheading them, that's just par for the course for the East India Company. Um, but, like, their foot soldiers who signed up probably didn't think they were taking part in a giant horrific war crime machine. Probably. But, you know. 
Shit happens. But I also assume that they were probably fucking cheering on from the sideline. There's a few sick fucks in the back. They're like, fuck yeah, let's go! <laughs> you won't do it? <laughs> yeah. So the army of the Indus marched on, crushing Das Muhammad's forces in every single battle uh, that they met. Muhammad actually had the balls to mock the British chief representative to Gould, William McNaughton, and sent him a letter that said, I am like a wooden spoon. He may throw me hither and yon, but I shall not be hurt. So this guy had like enough guts to like, yeah, I'm getting my ass kicked, but uh, I'm still standing. Yeah. Like, but you know, this isn't like Rocky where, or like the Simpsons episode where Homer became a boxer. Oh yeah. Like <laughs> that one's way better than yeah. Rocky. Das never won. Yeah. He just kept losing. The point where the British were going to get tired and he was going to go for the knockout blow never happened. He just kept getting his ass kicked. Yeah. Um, Should have used the barbed wire. Yeah. That's the, from the, the Simpsons episode. The stinger. So. <laughs> That's the stinger. Yeah. They don't allow that anymore. Um, soon the whole country <laughs> fell under company control. The other puppet, Shujisha, and the majority of the 25,000-man army of the Indus turned around and went back to India, leaving a small 8,000-man force behind to try to quell this whole country. Right. Um, and you said you had something about how so, much this costs. Yeah, and the war cost was like, it was a shit ton like, the war cost is uh, 15 million pounds at the time, but in today's time, it was around 50 billion pounds, and in our currency, is 80 billion, and, uh... It's the sound of sweet, sparkling, disgusting strawberry <laughs> water going into my cup. But, it's honestly kind of like, uh, also a sale, because, uh, today's conflict costs immensely more. And, like, it should be noted, um, that they left behind 8,000 people... Um, we had at our peak, I think like close to 200,000 in the country and we still fucking failed. Yeah. Um, and it was, sorry, we are still currently failing. Yes. Um, we are. that's not over. Actually, uh, someone died fighting there today. Um, which is, uh, was today the eighth, the seventh? I don't have my days fucked up right now. Yeah, so. me too. But you know, we're recording this on uh, Saturday, and the seventh. Uh, we're recording on the seventh. Yeah, we're in, and a soldier just died there, um, in an insider attack. Right. So, uh, and uh, what exactly um, did that force consist of? You said you had some stupid so, uh, <laughs> metrics. So you have your original soldier officers and enlisted personnel. You have your also the lives of 40,000 people, 50,000 camels. And these are 40,000 Europeans. Yes, which is fucking insane. All for the life of trying to make a comfortable living for the, I assume, mainly the officers, which is... Still an insane amount of people. Yeah. And uh, this consisted also of one grand piano, a fucking cat, a parakeet, and five maidservants. I'm surprised. I'm actually the only thing about that I'm surprised about there's only five maidservants. That's honestly what I'm surprised about as well. <laughs> um, but when you're living in Kabul, times are tough. Yeah. I know. When I went to Kabul, they had a barbecue. <laughs> in an officer's base and it was it was magnificent no they did they just call them aides now <laughs> or yeah uh so the afghans launched a guerrilla war as pretty much everybody saw coming against the british led by dost muhammad until he was captured and sent to exile in ironically india of all places in 1840 um eventually afghan noblemen warlords and chiefs turned against shuja shah like anybody with a fucking one wrinkle on the brain saw company, and the company flocked towards, uh, oh, sorry, they, they turned against the company and flocked towards Akbar Khan, who was the son of Dost Muhammad. What the majority of, what was the majority of the Afghan complaints? Well, it turns out that the British just would not stop fucking Afghan women. <laughs> um, <laughs> and this, like, no, there's all sorts of things here. Like, they you, they could complain about the, their lack of, of, of controlling their own sovereignty. They can they could complain about colonialism. They can complain about the obvious giant boot that Shuja Shah was putting on them. But the main complaint, in numerous accounts, was of bathhouse... The bathhouse orgies, people fucking in broad daylight in front of other people, not to mention the huge cottage industry of prostitution that sprang up. So these mothers, these motherfuckers, did little to endure themselves, but meddled in the uh, creating thriving markets and you know, like 
prostitution and shit. They didn't create a thriving market with their dicks. Right. And, I mean, and they generated inflation up the ass. And, I mean, it's this is an army of thousands of soldiers with very little regulation. I can yeah. imagine, like, present-day Afghanistan would literally look the exact same if we didn't have strict rules in place. Um, and just like today, Afghanistan is a desperately poor country back then. Um, you can't really blame them for being turned out in, into prostitutes right. when, like, a pitily ass private's pay um, was enough. It was a small right. fortune. The good in the old enlisted corps yeah. went out into the town, said, let's fucking get some prostitutes in here. And guess what? This poor market, which is all Afghanistan was, was a poor market. It, that's all it was known for, was its market. Yeah. It was a poor fucking country. They didn't really even find natural resources until recently. Yeah. Today. Um, so all this, you know, amoral hooking and fucking royally pissed off the staunchly conservative, very religious Afghan chiefs. Um, not to mention Shuja was so unpopular that many of his ministers fucking hated him and then just joined Akbar. Akbar met with many other leaders in Kabul when what's known as a jirga, or a clan meeting, um, and planned a general uprising. One Pashtu chief said, quote, and I need to say, this is a, a direct quote from a first-hand account. It's so fucking good. Um, quote, now we are justified in throwing off this English yoke. They stretched the hand of tyranny to dishonor private citizens, great and small. Fucking a slave girl isn't worth the ritual bath that follows it, but we have to put a stop to it right here and now. Otherwise, these English will ride the donkey of their desires into the field of stupidity to the point of having us all arrested and aborted to a foreign field. Um, this kind of brings up a lot of questions to me, um, but mostly it speaks volumes of how well they think of, one, their dicks, and two, their own goddamn women. Oh, like, their dicks probably smell really bad, dude. <laughs> dude. Uh, I don't, like, they're not even upset about the hooking. They're just pissed they didn't use a ritual bath. Yeah. And I did a lot of weird Google it, searching I already here. know their ritual bath still sucks. Their dicks probably still smell. <laughs> like... I mean, this is the 1800s. Nobody was bathing that regularly in the first place. Yeah, but, but still, <laughs> like, like, fucking if fucking Muhammad from like across the table from me still smells like asshole. I know it's his dick. <laughs> why would you? Why was assholes? What? what? <laughs> You're bringing more questions to the table now, Nick. That's what we do here. <laughs> so, like, I, I did a lot of weird Google searching um, to the point that I had to like delete my browsing history. Because I was I was looking I was looking for what the fuck ritual bath he was talking about after banging out a prostitute. And I could find literally nothing. Holy shit, that's in the back of my mind. What is the ritual bath like, like there, bathing? There's some specific ritual bath he's thinking of, and I could find nothing. I mean, I had one when I was a small child. A ritual bath? I assume that's what a uh how do some people say Baptism? Baptism? I don't think, but... Ritual like, bath, maybe? I, I don't think that's the same. <laughs> I don't think it's the same, but that's the only thing that comes to my mind because I was a former Catholic. Um, so that's the only thing that comes to mind for me. You know, I'm going to steer clear of the priest jokes uh, so we can move on. <laughs> uh, he may have taken ritual bath after you were a page boy or whatever. But <laughs> uh, So a lot of this boils down to the, what's known as the code of Pashtun Wali or the traditional legal code of the Pashtus, the major ethnic group of Afghanistan. Um, one of the tenets of Pashtun Wali is Badal, or revenge. This demand for revenge has absolutely no time limit and is passed down through families and tribal lines. Revenge can be demanded for something as little as a taunt, so you can imagine turning out a bunch of women into prostitutes registers somewhere on the revenge scale. Pair that with another tenet, that of uh, Namus, meaning the protection of women's virtues. Um, so the company men had set up a powder keg full of hookers, and they had absolutely no capability to control it. How big is a powder keg to hold hookers? Like, how many hookers per powder keg? I, uh, I'm not good at math, but I would assume... Uh, let's go with a baker's dozen of hookers. Baker's dozen. <laughs> <laughs> so, Lord Kabul's commander... And the star of our show here today is Lord William Elphinstone was left bam, 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 bam. <laughs> was left to defend himself. Elphinstone was a veteran of the Napoleonic Wars and was awarded the Companion of the Bath for his actions during the Battle of Waterloo. Waterloo. 
Um, I will let you make your own jokes about what the companion of the bath award means. Because we still don't know what bath means in either sense. I'm going to assume he's really good at ritual hooker bathing. But I know my bathing session <laughs> consisted of me being a baby getting drowned by a priest. <laughs> and I have the video, the VHS video of me just getting fucking dumped like Achilles by the ankles. <laughs> crying the ankles? and nobody fucking stopping the priest. You get dunked in a pool of water by an old man wearing wizard robes. Yeah, that <laughs> motherfucker. <laughs> oh, man, as much as I'd like to just stay on that for a little bit longer. Oh, God. Don't worry, it'll probably be brought up again. <laughs> so Elphinstone was old and way past his prime. By some accounts, he was suffering from some unknown illness that nobody ever really named or diagnosed, and they made him particularly frail and slow. Herpacipolitis. Yeah, uh, probably from not taking the ritual bath. <laughs> um, some said he could hardly stand under his own strength, and he was incredibly weak-minded. Lady Sale, a wife of an officer under his command, stated that his decisions are as easily changed by the last person he talked to. Um, that sounds frighteningly familiar for somebody else that we know in this day and age. Um, but <laughs> not only was he physically slow, but he was mentally slow. And as the city burned around him, as the jihad was declared, he did absolutely nothing to stop it, which only encouraged further revolt. Um, it did not take long for the army's cantonment, which was actually a mile and a half away from Kabul city center, um, <laughs> to be surrounded and besieged by Afghan warriors. Yep. Um, admittedly stupid idea to situate their main defenses outside of the city because there's actually a citadel, which still stands to this day in the center of Kabul. I've seen it. It's pretty cool. Um, I have not. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it was born out of their idea to make Shuja Shah look like a legitimate ruler. But really, all it does doom them from the start. Elphinstone called for reinforcements from Kandahar, but they turned around when they saw the mountain passes were blocked by snow. Elphinstone would have to stand on his own. On December 23rd, McNaughton knew that their situation was completely and totally unattainable. He decided to meet with Akbar and negotiate a peaceful withdrawal of troops. Before that, they were under relentless artillery, like fire, from the surrounding hills. They were getting fucked. And when you think about that, you have to see the area. Um, we'll post some pictures of it. Um, it is really, really, really easy to be in a tactically disadvantageous position in the country of Afghanistan, which is why nobody ever successfully invades it. Right. You're always surrounded on all sides by mountains, unless you're in Helmand, where it's flat. Um but this is far away from there. Um, and like most armies that would later uh, do the same thing, they just picked a flat spot in the middle of a valley to set their base up. Stupid. Yes. Um, so along with 12,000 civilians that accompany the army as camp followers, which we just talked about, um, and the camp followers are everything from merchants to tradesmen to porters to soldiers' families to the aforementioned hookers, it, it was one cat and uh, parakeets as well. Yeah, uh, I can't forget the. Uh, I'm sure some kind of knighted cat. And I don't know why that's noted. Uh, it must have been cat. an important cat. Um, it better have been a fucking cool looking cat. First of all, it was probably cool as shit because it was able to withstand a siege for a large period of time. Probably had like a gnarly. Well, face yeah, they're trying to fucking save mittens from the fucking siege. <laughs> like I would too. Like I'd save my dog. I'd yeah, I'd totally save my dog from a siege of Afghans. Uh, at least attempt. Um, you know, th these camp followers or the parakeet, the cat, whatever, were everything that armies ran on back then. Um, so they were trying to save them. Akbar, always an agreeable man, agreed to sit down for some tea and talks. Um, when the British delegation showed up to the agreed-upon spot at the agreed-upon time, they were simply dragged from their horses and slaughtered. Their bodies were mutilated and drug dragged through the streets of Kabul to everybody's horror Alphonso did nothing in response to these attacks, um, and then he just promoted Major Eldred Pottinger, Pottinger to replace the dead guy. Um, and this is this is bad for well, you know hundred different reasons. It pretty much showed the Afghans that the Brits aren't going to stand and fight. It right. shows that they're led by a weak person and they can do whatever they want. Um, and, you know, everybody at this point in the dispatches of the survivors at the time are saying Elphinstone's an idiot. Um, and, you know, military tact and decorum just did not allow them to, like, hey, old man, take a knee. The future is now. 
Like, <laughs> well, he was known as an incompetent soldier who became a general. Yeah. By one of his counterparts, which I don't know how I didn't write it down in my notes. And I completely forgot the general's name. I, I dare you have it. I don't. Um, so, first of all, I don't like him because he was involved in Waterloo and deposed our glorious Le, Le Petit Caporel. <laughs> um, may he always rest in peace. Um, so, the siege wore on, grinding the British down to a nub. Their army could not fight anymore. They're in disadvantageous position, and everybody was demoralized. On January 1st, Alphonstone agreed to Akbar's terms of withdrawal. Now, um, I'm not going to make the joke now. It comes up later. But, now... Nobody wanted Elphinstone to meet with him or agree with him for this withdrawal, for obvious reasons, because McNaughton just fucking died meeting this guy. Right. Um, so the terms of withdrawal were very unfavorable. Um, all British gunpowder reserves had to be surrendered, along with most of their mo- modern muskets and cannons. Um, in return, Akbar promised a safe passage for the army and all camp followers all the way to Jalalabad, 90 miles away. And it's January 1st. And for some reason, a lot of people think of Afghanistan as like the Middle East um, because Americans are inherently stupid and whatever, but uh, it's not. And what Lord Uckland said earlier about being nothing but rocks and snow and ice during the winter is absolutely true. Um, So this is going to be a tough march in the best circumstances. Um, but the best circumstances just simply didn't exist um, during this march. Uh, I know I've made the joke before that uh, Russian history can be described with the, with the quote, and then things got worse. <laughs> uh, but so can this march. Um, this column was shit. Uh, yeah, and then, and then things just got worse. Um, and on the first light of January 6th, the column set off, leaving Shuja Shah behind in Kabul to his fate. Um, Once everybody was out of the main cantonment, Afghan warriors quickly rushed in, taking up the old British positions, and began firing at the withdrawing column. They then slaughtered all the people the British had left behind. Now, there was a lot of um, kids and wounded and sick that the Brits left behind because, um, of course, Akbar, being the generous man that he is, said, oh, no, they're fine. We'll take care of them. Right. Um, And then he just... Gentleman-like. Yeah. Destroyed them. Um, I'm starting to think Akbar might be a little bit of a bastard. Yes. Not not that I can blame him. I can't blame him. So, along with giving up his arms and weapons and shit, the destruction of his column took three days. And they had, it was like 3,000 would die and uh, all this bullshit. A lot would fucking die within 25 miles. They did not get far. No, they didn't. At fucking all. Not at all. So, also part of the agreement was uh, Akbar promised there was going to be an escort. Uh, to lead the army through the mountains. Well, the escort never showed up, and instead the army came under fire from all sides, um, using those nice shiny new muskets that Elphinstone had just gifted them, exactly. and their old sweet Gisales. Pottinger urged Elphinstone to turn back and retake the Kabul fortress of Bala Hissar before it was too late, which was the central citadel. Um, they could have done it. They absolutely could have done it, even with no cannon, no nothing. They still had a forty-five thousand man, or sorry, a four forty-five hundred man strong army against what were effectively feudal levies. Yeah, with they, fucking muskets that looked like cursive. Um, how dare you speak about Giselles <laughs> that way? Um, <laughs> they but, look like fucking my signature when I <laughs> write. Yeah, it's credit. My signature, Giselle. Yeah. Um, they could have, I mean, this would have been an infantry assault. They could have pushed them out of the area. Um, the column at this time was around 16,000. Um, now, obviously, like we said, the vast majority of those were camp followers. Um, but Elphinstone refused, instead ordering them to keep on to Jalalabad, which, I should remind you, is 90 miles away in the middle of winter, surrounded on all sides. Cold as fuck. Freezing. I all right. So I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, um, and the winters there are rough. They're not fun. Um, but the coldest I have ever been in my life is sitting through a winter in Afghanistan. See, that's funny. Uh, the coldest I is in Texas when I first got there, and it was ten <laughs> degrees, and I was like, "What the fuck?" Everybody lied to me. This doesn't happen in California. I said Texas. That's what I meant. You grew up in California. Well, yeah. In California, it never gets cold. Literally never dips below 30 or 40. 
Yeah. It's great. 30 is pretty cold after living in Texas for as long as I did. Anyway, um, so the column slowly limped on at the mercy of the Afghan tribesmen. By the second day, the column is moving at a crawl. And you can imagine these, like, there's 10,000 plus civilians in this column who never thought they're going to be in a direct exactly. musket cannon fire. Uh, so they're freaking out. And the panicking civilians have to be herded around like cats. Not Literally, the, just one cat. Not not the important cat. It's like, <laughs> like plurality of cats. Um, I imagine the parakeet probably flew away because I would. Yeah, I would hope so. Because the, parakeet, noted... the parakeet is not mentioned, so I imagine it flew away. Yeah, he actually is uh, in the Afghan parliament to this day. Uh, <laughs> He's known as a fucking god. Yeah. Because uh, nobody knows of him. His uh, parakeet Christ. Uh, so the panicking civilians slowed down the progression and made defending the column all but impossible because it's still the 1800s. Defending and attacking relies on, you know, block formations of lining up and putting uh, large amounts of muskets on target. You can't do that when you're trying to herd all these people together. And, like, it just doesn't work. Right. So... On the afternoon of the second day, Akbar again met with Alpenstone. Coming down all the way from the mountains and playing stupid about the massive ambush they'd walked right into. He's like, Alpenstone sits down, he's like, You told me you'd give me this golem. Like, <laughs> what's going on? Like, you know, it's like he's a doddering old idiot. Like, he has like two aides to like help him sit down. So, and then a- Akbar's like, Nah, bro, totally nothing to do with it. Instead, he actually blamed the Brits for leaving the base too early, and that's why his escort wasn't there, even though that was the agreed-upon time to leave the base. Dude, your guys' fucking alarm clock went off early. <laughs> and I, yeah, and I know at this point, we're, all of you are probably thinking, we're probably thinking, Elfinson's like, you know what, you're an asshole. You're clearly not right here. You would be wrong. You would be so fucking wrong. Instead, Elfinson agreed, like, our bad, and then he, uh, part of the agreement was, uh, hey, you guys sit tight. Akbar's like, you guys sit tight. I'm going to head out ahead. Down this, uh, the, the cord will pass. I'm going to talk to all these warlords and chieftains. Right. And, you know, we're going to get this right. We're going to squash this fucking Shit's beef. Shit's going to get fucking cool. Like, we're, we're going to be good. Yeah, we're going to squash this beef that, we, that clearly is, you know, not in the right here. And then you guys are going to march through. Completely safe. Elphinstone agreed. He agreed again. And at this point, this guy is either the dumbest... Most trustworthy motherfucker on the face of the planet. Or this could only make sense in someone's brain who's just like eaten alive by dementia. Of course, Akbar just rode ahead, using the extra time that he had bought to set up an even better ambush. Like, also with that shit, along with the money that went towards them, and not enough soldiers and whatnot, I already went over the money... Um, it didn't buy off the uh, factions that were in the area along yeah. this pass. Part of the so company's this, plan was to buy them all off. Exactly. And this had to do with heavy resistance on the way out. Mm-hmm. So they got fucked up. Every single officer present urged Elphinstone to instead leave the camp followers behind for the time being and rush forward to fight through the ambush. Um, which actually to this day is what you're supposed to do exactly. for an ambush. Uh, you, you're supposed to push through it. Push through it. Um, if you have the chance, but what you don't do exactly. is just let it form it in front of you. Instead, the army's cohesion fell apart entirely, and the column only limped for about six miles that day, right to the ambush. Once the column pushed through any given ambush point, the fighters descended down from the mountains and slaughtered the wounded and anybody who was left behind. Save mittens! Save the cat! <laughs> Save mittens! So the cat died. Also, I'm just going to note that now because it is known that one cat was killed throughout the whole fucking column. And, you know, it, it's kind of strange that they note that the cat died because, like, you don't know a lot of the names of the soldiers who fucking died. Exactly. But the cat is noted as to have died. But the parakeet was not long-lived the parakeet. Exactly. I know nothing about the parakeet. Long-lived the parakeet. Or the, parakeet the grand is piano is probably still fucking at the the the, the the fucking warriors made their way down the hill and they're like, hey, cut that guy's head off. Hey, shoot that cat. Oh, sick piano. <laughs> like, and they just start dropping beats in the middle of the ambush zone. Um, but uh, so by January 9th, the column had moved only 25 miles, but lost more than 3,000 people. Three days, 25 miles. Many, which is sad. That's rough, man. That's fucking terrible. Uh, many had died in the fighting, but an equal number had simply frozen to death. 
and a sizable number looking at the misery around them and knowing that they were simply going to die from the Afghans or be slaughtered after they were wounded, shot themselves or stabbed themselves. And that's funny because there's a poem by uh, uh, Rudyard Kipling. Rudyard Kipling. I knew I'd fuck up his first name. But Kipling's poem, The Young British Soldier, is basically written off a young uh, British Army's experience in the First Angelo-Afghan War, which states, uh, When you're wounded and left on Afghanistan's plains, and the women can't come out to cut up what remains, just roll to your rifle and blow out your brains, and go to your god like a soldier. My personal favorite part of that is God is spelled like G-A-W-D. G-A-W-D, yeah. Like- Ashley Simpson fucking wrote it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And we actually covered Rudyard Kipling on accident once before in our uh, William Hague episode because uh, Kipling got his son killed in World War I. Um, So a handwritten report by Elphinstone from this period says that most of the surviving Sepoys had lost fingers and toes from frostbite and their muskets were frozen and completely useless. Um, Witnesses say at this point... Elphinstone had given up taking any control of the situation and instead just sat there on his horse in silence as people died <laughs> around him. Like, this dude just sitting on his horse in complete silence as people are blowing their fucking brains out around him and freezing to death. <laughs> like, this dude is sundowning so bad or his brain is just, like, mush and dribbling out of his eye. Like, he's not even smooth brain. His brain has died. It's nothing but worms. Um, so- I usually like smooth brain. <laughs> I don't... No, about fucking brain coming out of your ear. Yeah. I've had what is known as clear fluid come out of my ear. Yeah, cerebral spinal fluid. You should get that checked out. Yeah, it sucks. <laughs> so on the night of the 9th, Lady Sale and the majority of the wives and the families of the soldiers, along with their servants, reluctantly accepted Akbar's assurances of protection again. At this time pretty much mean what they would be held hostage for a ransom, and that would come later. And this is kind of custom. I mean, at the, this is why the British people, uh, the British soldiers, British leadership, probably kept accepting that, um, that you know, Akbar was going to be in a level that, you know, we'll just, you know, they'll pay the ransom, we'll go free, because that's how things worked on the field of battle right. at the time. it was very gentleman-like. But they weren't fighting gentlemen, they were fighting people that fucking hated them. Exactly. And different factions. So they did not give a fuck. Yeah. And actually, to Akbar's credit, he kind of, kind of held on to his agreement here. Unless they weren't white. All of the Sepoy's wives and all the Indian servants were murdered on the spot. So I imagine that cat <laughs> was probably white. Because the cat died. We don't know if this is when the cat died. So the cat could have died of crossfire, or they saw the cat and they were like, this cat's fucking white. In my opinion, the cat died in the heroic last stand um, that we'll get to. Yes. That'd um, be fucking great. Like, Mittens floating out. <laughs> um, so on the night of the 11th, the army consisted of only about 200 men. Sad. 200. Yes, very. And led by a General John Shelton. In a rare show of competence among the leadership of the column, he led a rearguard action against the Afghans. They huddled together to fight to the death in a small mud-walled compound around Jegaladak and fought off attack after attack of the Afghan warriors. Once again... Akbar, seeing he was being fought, approached them for negotiations. And at this point, being a competent commander, you know Shelton was like, you know what, Akbar, fuck you. Just kidding. He agreed to meet with the oh, yeah. This is the most trustworthy army. The, all right, so this is where I stop giving them credit. The British army at this point in time has been completely fucking brain dead, where Akbar was some real-life Skyrim character whose speech skills at 100. No sense why... Anybody would fucking believe this guy. But, I mean, I also said that, like, seven negotiations ago. <laughs> but, Most I guess... Trustworthy army, for some fucking reason. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me three times, I guess I get a commission in the British army. <laughs> um, so, as soon as Shelton and Elphinstone showed up to the meeting place, they were captured. Though they weren't killed. And the defense did not last much longer without their leadership. Um... The largest body of surviving men, which consisted of about 45 European soldiers and 20 officers, mostly from the 44th Regiment of Foot, ended up with their backs against the wall near the village of Gandamak, uh, the path ahead blocked by snow. With only 20 working muskets among them and two shots apiece, they decided, fuck it, we're going to make one last stand and die like soldiers. This time, when the Afghans approached for negotiations, 
And they did, because why wouldn't you? At this point, if, right. you're, if you're an Afghan warlord, you're like, these guys are fucking stupid, and they keep stopping fighting us. But it's funny how it seems it, it seems like the British culture fixates on the defeat of uh, the 44th foot. Foot? Sorry. <clears throat> and uh, they don't focus on, like, a year later, the British fucked the Afghan army up. Well, yeah, because of this. But the second Anglo-Afghan war. And that's why I talk about it as well. It's like, uh, this looks like a what I see as propaganda, and it looks romantic and sexy that the 44 foot had their courageous stand. And that's how I see it. Well, they ha- uh, it, it's hard for, like, historical, even historical revisionism at this point, when you... Um, when you when you're trying to talk about the war, nobody like even in modern history, when you talk about like Vietnam and you know the War of eighteen twelve or the global war on terrorism, right? Nobody talks about it. Well, when they talk about, it, they always they look for the diamond in the rough that sometimes isn't diamond; it's a pile of shit. Because I mean, the only reason why the British were here is because they thought of some stupid fucking reason to go to war. Right. And the forty fourth regiment of foot only had to make their last stand because of shitty foreign relations, um, and that is normal. For the most part. I mean, that happens time and time again throughout history. Um, and when the Afghans had them with their back against the wall, they approached it for negotiations again. Um, a British sergeant instead shot a weapon at them and said, Not bloody likely! After firing what little ammunition they had, the small detachment was overrun and killed almost to a man. Um, on January 13th, one British officer, an assistant surgeon named William Bryden, breeding pro usually from a sword wound that sheared off part of his goddamn skull. His fucking skull! And the only <laughs> reason why it didn't kill him is uh, to protect himself from the cold, he shoved a magazine into his hat, like a paper magazine, and it deflected the sword blow just enough to only cleave off a small part of his head. His fucking horse was wounded yeah, as well. shot multiple times. Um, he arrived at Jalalabad. An officer stationed in Jalalabad asked Bryden where the rest of the army was, and Bryden answered only, I am the army. That was quoted. He said that shit. Upon hearing the news, what had happened to the army, Lord Auckland reportedly suffered a stroke. Of the British prisoners, 32 officers, over 50 soldiers, 21 children, and 12 women survived to actually be released on September or in September 1842, an unknown number of sepoys and, un- and other Indian prisoners were sold into slavery in Kabul or kept as captives in mountain villages. Akbar would actually eventually be betrayed, like he did so many times, and was poisoned by his own father, who feared his ambitions. Can you make the joke now? What joke? Akbar? It's a trap! <laughs> it's a trap! <laughs> you could have made that joke the whole time through the whole podcast. Low-hanging fruit, man! Low-hanging <laughs> fruit! Not a lot of people know, surprisingly. <laughs> so, eventually, Shuja Shah was assassinated in April of 1842, and Dost Muhammad would return to rule until his death in 1863. And he died a peaceful death, was not assassinated, which is like only a few leaders in Afghan history can say. Like, and that is, like, to the current time. How Shuja fucking was assassinated was fucking funny as shit. Because he avoided conflict the whole fucking time. He avoided conflict. From his fortress, um, around 25 April 1842, he uh, emerged from his uh, fortress as promptly assassinated by a... You're probably going to have to help me with this. This is a... Barakazi? Barakazi? Yeah, the Barakazi clan. Barakazi clan. Yeah. They assassinated the fuck out of him. <laughs> 25 April, 1842. Surprising he even lasted that long because he was unpopular since, like, before he stepped foot in the country. Uh, and I'm assuming, like, the time frame that he survived was just as long as it took Dost Muhammad to, like, walk back to Afghanistan from India. Uh, <laughs> this dude was a straight fucking asshole well, I mean like the first thing he did when he shut up was start cutting people's heads off uh, I'm sure not many people liked it either no well, I mean when he declared himself king he still only controlled two cities exactly. and only lasted two years then um, and even then like around this time rulers barely clung on to power especially in Afghanistan exactly which is why the British and the Russians were like it was, easy, it, was a, it was an easily 
manipulated area because they knew that they didn't even have an army to fight them. But that bit them in the ass. Exactly. Um, so Elphinstone died in captivity and was buried in an unmarked grave where wherever that is remains to this day. Nobody ever reclaimed his body. Like, and that's saying some shit. Because, like, only a year later, the Brits came back and stomped exactly. them into the ground. But nobody's Dude. like, nobody thought to ask where he was buried. Yeah. Um, thankfully for the Afghan people, nothing bad had ever happened in the region again in the history of the world. And they live in prosperity to this day. And I won't hear anything otherwise. <laughs> yeah just kidding um so that is the retreat from kabul and that was depressing it was besides one officer who made it off a sheer fucking his head half sheared off and he on actually, a wounded horse yeah and he thought he was the only one later to find out that there were more soldiers but still Holy fuck. Well, he was the only one to trickle into Jalalabad. Um, Not other, being a hostage. Right. Like other other people one. survived right. um, as, hostages, as slaves and hostages at root, running into the mountains and whatever. Um, and then Brennan actually went on to keep fighting as a, well, fighting, you know, notionally as an assistant surgeon and fought in Burma. The dude just didn't know when to quit. Yeah. And, and by the British, this was a... Uh, uh, one of their worst, what is it, strategic defeats since uh, Singapore? Yeah, and Singapore happened, what, like a century to the day, or almost something crazy like that, which Very. probably didn't weigh too well on their conscience. No. Um, but that's a that's a different topic for a different episode, because it definitely deserves one. Um, but yeah, that's our episode for this week. Um, you can follow us on social media, the... Links will be in the episode notes as long as as well as our sources, um, and uh, we have to go now because we have to go pick up tacos and watch <laughs> UFC. Um, because I paid way too much to watch Dana White's high impact ballerinas. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's better than I can explain it. Yeah. Um, so thank you to everybody who is following us on Twitter and whatever other podcasts platform you use and um thanks to your support we might have a sponsor like i said last week hopefully yeah oh my god which is kind of insane to think about um follow the podcast for all my stupid history of the day moments or follow us on twitter follow uh, please rate and review us on itunes and all the other shits that you listen to and uh thank you have a good week later